0: We turn in God's Word this evening to the book of Exodus, chapter 27. While you're finding that, let me just say thank you, Brenda, for taking Henry along with you tonight. So everybody can now have the picture of what flailing is all about on a volleyball court. Because I know people have been wondering since that sermon as well. So thank you. Thank you, brother, as well. Henry and I have had a good email exchange since then. Henry thinks Mother's Day now ought to be called Henry Day. So I don't think that's going anywhere. Exodus chapter 27. We're going to pick it up at verse 9. One of the members mentioned about a week and a half ago, they said, Pastor, you've been preaching about the tabernacle. We had that when we had our series on Moses, and then we've gone through all these pieces of the the furniture that are a part of this tabernacle arrangement, but what about the court? What about the place where all of these items are? And I said, you're right, we need to cover that as well. So this evening, that's what we're covering, the court of the tabernacle how we see, once again, Christ so beautifully portrayed in this section of Scripture. Exodus chapter 27, beginning to read then at verse 9. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. It's twenty pillars, and their twenty bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise, for the length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars twenty, and its bases twenty of bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for fifty cubits with ten pillars and ten bases. The breadth of the court on the front To the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hanging shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with a needlework. It shall have four pillars, and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver, and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty, the height five cubits, with hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, and all the pegs, and all the pegs of the court. Shall be of bronze. And then, once again, if you turn to Exodus chapter 38, that which we just read is God's command to Moses there on the mountain. God, then, as we have looked at and examined, shows Moses the pattern. So it, it's, uh, for those of you visiting, it, it appears that it's more of a blueprint or perhaps even a 3D image of some sort that the Lord gives to Moses so that he is allowed to see, because that's the constant refrain that comes back. Not what I told you, but what I showed you, what I showed you on the mountain. So God gives to Moses some sort of vision, image, picture of that which he is to build. That's what we just read then the fulfillment of it is found here in Exodus chapter 38. And he made the court for the south side. The hangings of the court were of fine twined linen, 100 cubits. Their 20 pillars and their 20 bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the north side there were hangings of a 100 cubits, their 20 pillars, their 20 bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the west side were hangings of 50 cubits, their 10 pillars and their 10 bases. The hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the front of the east, 50 cubits. The hangings for one side of the gate were 15 cubits, with their three pillars and three bases, and for the other side— On both sides of the gate of the court were hangings of fifteen cubits with their three pillars and their three bases. All the hangings around the court were of fine twined linen. And the bases for the pillars were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. The overlaying of their capitals were also of silver, and all the pillars of the court were filleted with silver." And the screen for the gate of the court was embroidered with needlework in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine-twined linen. It was twenty cubits long and five cubits high in its breadth, corresponding to the hangings of the court. And their pillars were four in number. Their four bases were of bronze, their hooks of silver, and the overlaying of their capitals and their fillets of silver." All the pegs for the tabernacle and for the court, all around, were of bronze. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. And amen. I want to look at. Three things from this particular passage of Scripture. First of all, what are the measurements of this courtyard? What's going on there? Just so we have the idea of, of how large this actually was. Secondly, the, the designation that is called out. The, the, the way in which God identifies one of the items for singular purpose. And that would be the entrance to the courtyard. And then thirdly, the fulfillment of this courtyard that again we find in Christ. Well, the basic measurements are these. If we transfer the cubits uh, into inches, the general pattern, the general standard is that a cubit is 18 inches. However, I must let you know, some of you perhaps in your English versions might not have these same measurements. And I found out that that's because... Sometimes they use not 18, but 21. So that would indeed change things. However, it would appear that the standard of measurement was generally 18 inches. Which would mean that given the measurements that we have been given in Exodus chapter 27 in cubits, it would transfer into this. It would be 75 feet wide by 150 feet long. So not exceptional. Seventy-five feet wide is approximately the width of this sanctuary, approximately. Okay? The hundred and seventy, the hundred and fifty feet long. It's a little longer than the present sanctuary in Narthex and those classrooms put together. But if you if you can kind of just okay, give me an idea, Pastor Bob. It's about the size of this building. That's the courtyard. Inside of that courtyard is where the brazen altar goes, where the labor goes, and then where the tabernacle, the tent itself goes, and then all the furniture in it. One of the things that, that we've noted about all of these items is that none of them have we been given measurements that we'd go, wow, that was huge. Most of these items are relatively small. And if you stop to think about it, this courtyard in and of itself is a relatively small area. Especially when you consider it's basically servicing two to three million people. So imagine if camped around this facility, camped around this structure, we had two or three million people, all of whom... okay outside of women and children, I'll I'll put that in, okay? So we have 600,000 who are in some way to be actively involved in what is taking place here. Now, my guess is in the world in which we live, we would think we need a building program, okay? Because that's just way too small a structure to handle so many people. And we might ask ourselves, what was God doing? Why did he make it so small? Well, as we have been emphasizing, it is not the size of any of these items. It is the fact that God was signifying for us the glorious truth of his worship and the presence of his son, Jesus Christ. So that's the size, 75 feet by 150 feet. It has, and and this is notable because this takes up most of the section of what we read, is the fence that encircles it. So it's not just that they staked it out and said, here it is. They actually put up a fence. They put up a curtain all the way around this 75 by 150 foot courtyard. It's designated with its 60 bases that were set up around it, and the fabric we are told, specifically, is that a fine twined linen. It's a white fence that goes all the way around. The bases are made of bronze, but the various parts to which the fence are attached are silver. And then it has a top piece on top of each one of these posts that is also made of silver. Silver. God is obviously designating two different types of metals are to be found in this fence. The bronze, which we have understood as we've looked at other pieces of furniture, to be that which represents the earthly, that which represents the human, and the silver, which represents that which sanctifies, that which purifies, that which is part of the, the silver they all got from the atonement money that that they gave so there is a picture there of atonement going on with all of the silver the point is that this is to serve as a boundary it's to serve as a separation the hebrew word that is used here okay, can be translated as court in the sense of an enclosed area or an area that is separated off for a specific use. So God is sending a message. There's no doubt about it. Because this isn't Moses coming up with it. This isn't Belial coming up with this idea of this is what we make. God is giving this directive. This is what I want you to make. This is the size I want you to make it. And I want you to make sure you understand that this serves as a boundary. The word that that God gave to Moses to describe what this thing is describes the idea of separation. The separation between himself and his people. There is a boundary that is listed there, that is given to us. Now, with that in mind, with that boundary in mind, with that idea that there is some sort of limitation. This isn't just free access. This isn't just like any old Israelite could get up from his tent one morning. I I dwell in the tents of Issachar. I get up in the morning and I go, Hey, I'm going to ramble over to the courtyard and I'm going to go stand in the courtyard. Now there's a fence there. There's a boundary there. That is saying to me, I cannot enter whenever I want to enter. That's not my privilege. That's not my prerogative. Even though I'm one of the sons of Issachar or one of the sons of Judah, that's not my prerogative. So, turn with me okay, to that psalm that we just sang, Psalm 84. See, now notice... What the psalmist is doing here. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Old Testament, Psalm 84, what is the dwelling place of God? The tabernacle. He dwells between the cherubim, right? Okay, he's there in the most holy place with the Shekinah glory, dwelling between those arms of of those angels in that empty space. Okay, no picture, no image of him, empty space. Okay? Okay. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints. For what? For the courts of the Lord. Now, why does the psalmist say that? I long for the courts. See, he doesn't say, I long for the most holy place. Well, he can't enter that. He's not the priest. He, He can't go in there. He's not the high priest. He, he, never, he never will have access to that. He can't enter the holy place. He's not a Levite. This is—that's not his prerogative. But he is allowed to enter the courtyard. He is one of the sons of Korah. My soul longs for the courts. All I want to do is be inside the fence. All I want to do is be inside the boundary. I just want to be near to the presence of my God. That's where I want to be. That's where my heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. See, now we could, we could simply pause and ask the question, Boy, this guy this guy has quite a desire to be in God's presence to worship, doesn't he? He wants to be there in the courts. He's pouring out his heart. The one thing we could ask ourselves, is that our desire? Do we have that kind of passion? You know, we come to church and maybe we're faithful in attending morning and night, but do we come with that passion? Or are we just coming out of routine? Are we just coming to, yeah, that's what I have to do. That's what I must do. Yeah, that's what's expected. Or is it coming out of a heart that's saying, my soul longs for the courts of the Lord. I'm over here, and I want to be there. I'm here in my house, and I want to be in the Lord's house. I'm here in my camp, and I want to be in the court of the Lord. beautiful picture for us is set. That's why you go down to verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now I think I've shared with you before the amazing thing about this text is that this is written by the sons of Korah. Korah is the man who rose up in opposition against the Lord's anointed, against the Lord's rules and against the Lord's regulations. But God in His grace and mercy gives to His sons the privilege, the privilege of being able to raise the songs of praise in the courtyard of the Lord. I would rather be in your courts than anywhere else. See, this courtyard is a boundary. And part of the reason for the boundary was to create in the hearts of his people a desire. Do you notice he just didn't put up a three-foot fence either? It's not like, yeah, put up a fence, make it three foot, then everybody can just look over so- top of it. The fence is seven and a half feet high. Jewish people are not very tall people. A seven and a half foot fence means basically it's about two feet above the top of their heads. They can't even look into it. They can't even peer over the top of the fence. It's no wonder that that the psalmists are are saying, "I I want to be in the court of my Lord. I'm on the outside here. But I long to be in the presence of my Lord. It forms a boundary. Yet when we go back again to Exodus chapter 27, what we find is that the Lord highlights for Moses and for us the entrance. Now note the following. One, this never would have followed past the fire marshal because there's only one. There's no back door. There's no back gate. There's no side gates. There is only one entrance to the courtyard. That's all there is. The entrance is on the side facing east, so it's on the eastern side. There's no way to get in on the south, no way to get in on the north, no way to get in on the west. If you're going to enter the court you have to enter it through the one and only entrance note secondly that the fabric for the entrance is made of the same material as is the fence it's made of fine twined linen However, God specifies that he wants the gate, the entrance, that curtain that stands at the front, he wants that to be ornate. It is to be made of blue and purple and scarlet yarn. The work of a needlework. It is to be embroidery. So here you have this piece of white fabric, which is the fine twined linen. Stitched into it are these beautiful colors. That says, that's the way I want the entrance to appear. I want the entrance to be distinct. I want the entrance to stand out. I want the entrance to be of such... A design that nobody will mistake where the entrance is. Everywhere else, they walk around, it's this fine twine linen. It's white. There's the entrance. Beautiful in its design. Well, okay, Pastor Bob, that's that's a lot of information, perhaps more than I've ever thought about as far as Exodus chapter 27. But really, what does this have to do with Christ? Well, let me place before you three things. And the third thing we'll we'll break down just a little bit more. One is it would appear that as we read about the distinction between the fabric, and as we read about the distinction, see, there's two distinctions, right? There's the white fabric... And then we have the entrance fabric. We have bases made of one thing, but caps made of another. It is as if God is, is pointing out the fact that there is something about two natures that is important for us to keep in mind. And when we look through the lens of Scripture down into the New Testament, what do we find but we find the coming of his son Jesus Christ in his two natures that he is both that human that bronze and he is that divine he is he is both the white curtain but he is so distinct and unique some commentators even point out and and the, maybe this is taking the the picture a little bit too far but they they speak of the fact of that that there are three colors to signify the fact that God is displaying himself as the Son who is part of a trinity. See, when you you step back from these passages and, and look at these passages, not just as Old Testament passages, but you read them in the light of the New Testament, you suddenly realize God was communicating far more to these people than what we often think God was communicating. I think sometimes when we read the Old Testament, we kind of get the feeling, well, God was just keeping them in the dark. God wasn't fully telling them everything. He was waiting to do that into the New Testament. Maybe our thinking needs to be changed, and we, we have to look at this and say, maybe God was revealing Himself quite regularly, quite fully to these people of the Old Testament. Maybe there was, there was much more being communicated than what we all often realize was being communicated. I say that just to underscore the fact of, you know, we live in a day and an age in a society in which, you know, most of these opening books, these 39 books, is not read very often anymore. People, people don't deal with them. People don't study them. People bypass them. They, they think all the, the good stuff is in the New Testament. And so they, they become New Testament people. And in reality, God has given us the fullness of his revelation. Genesis through revelation. All which is one beautifully complete whole. Even in this, in this setup of this courtyard, in the curtain, in the, in the dynamics going on in the post that are used to hold up the curtain, God is communicating beautifully to us the importance that if we desire to enter into covenant with him, if we desire to enter into those courts, we need to be righteous. The only way to be righteous is through atonement. So as you see, once again, not only in the courtyard itself, in the bases, in the top of the bases, in those pieces that connect the white linen to it, as you see the entrance, but also as you come in and you're immediately met with what? First of all, an altar, then a labor, our justification, our sanctification, and then we enter in. Okay, where we have a golden candlestick, where we have table of showbread, the light of the world, the bread of the world, where we see prayer on display in that altar of incense. And there then, in that most holy place, the very presence of God. Oh, God is communicating to us how it is that He desires to be worshipped and what it really takes for worship to actually happen, to actually take place. So one thing we see is the fulfillment of of all of this in these two natures of Christ. But but perhaps more specifically, there is the exclusiveness that we find in Christ. Take your scriptures. Okay, I'm going to do some New Testament digging now. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. I'll ask again, just to make sure you've been listening. How many entrances were there? One. Just one, right? There's only one way into this place. There's not multiple ways. You don't get to decide. Okay? There's only one way into the presence of the Lord. Matthew chapter 7. Pick it up with me at verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now isn't it interesting that that when Jesus is talking about eternal life, when Jesus is talking about being in the Lord's presence for all of eternity... What's the word that Jesus used to describe it? A gate? A gate? We have a structure, okay, that is 150, 150, 75, 75, but then you have the entrance carved out of that. It really is a relatively small part. There's a picture there, isn't there, of a narrow gate. This is the only way in, folks. This is the only way into the courtyard. You have to go through this gate. This small, relatively small opening compared to all the square footage of all the curtain that surrounds. This is the only spot you get to come in. This is the only way in. Let's turn as well to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. Pick it up at verse 44. Now, as we read this, be thinking of the gate. Be thinking of the entrance, the only way in. Luke 24, 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name. His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. In other words, they were to go out and witness what? That there was only one entrance to the presence of God. It's all about the exclusiveness of Christ. Turn with me to John chapter 3. John 3. Pick it up at verse 17, because you know verse 16. 17, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order... That the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See the exclusiveness? See the entrance of the courtyard. You want to get in? You got to go through that entrance, you got to go through that gate. It's the only way in. Let's go to one more, John chapter 10, verse 9. Remember how I've mentioned to you that, that from the very first, from John chapter 114, that G- he came and he tabernacled amongst, amongst us, that, that John, I think more than the other gospel writers, is seeing Christ as this fulfillment of the tabernacle? So you hear statements coming from Christ in the Gospel of John, I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life. All which, you know, so beautifully picture for us. That that if you're going to come to the Father, we must come in the name of Jesus. Look at John 10, 9. I am the door. That's pretty exclusive, isn't it? That's not the exclusive claim of the church. That's not the exclusive claim of the reformed faith. That's the exclusive claim of Jesus Christ. I am the door. There is no other door. It's just me. I'm the only way into the courtyard. There was no other way for an Israelite to enter into that courtyard of the tabernacle other than through the gate, other than through the door. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. It's a beautiful picture that Christ is giving of an Israelite coming, going through, the entrance of that courtyard in order to present his sacrifice that he might find peace with his Lord and that he might leave with the blessing of the Lord, the pasture of the Lord resting upon him. I think we're pretty well aware of that, aren't we? But on the other hand, we also must understand that there is a certain, not just exclusiveness going on here, but there is an inclusiveness. Stop to think about this. The Lord God, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, the holy one, the majestic one, the one that is completely other than all of his creation, has come down to dwell between the cherubim. In all the fullness of his glory, in light, that is unapproachable. God's presence was there with His people, and God didn't say, "And nobody come near." God put a door. God put an entrance to the courtyard. I mean, you you stop to think about it, isn't that kind of amazing? That God didn't just say, okay, here, be satisfied with this. This is where I am. I'm, I'm, I'm between the cherubim. Okay, now, stay away. Don't you dare come any closer. Put up a fence. Put up a big fence. Nobody in or out. That's it. I just want this spot for me. Now, God said, yeah, put a fence all the way around the thing. But over here on the east side, put in a gate. 15 cubits on each side. The whole of that side was 50 cubits. The side that is white is composed of then 30 cubits. There is 20 cubits that is this entrance. The 20 cubits compared to the other is relatively small. But if you stop to think about it, on that side, it overwhelms. It's larger than the two sides. It's a 35 foot wide entrance that God is inviting his people in and saying, I want you to come. I want you to come into my courts. I desire you to come. In fact, I'm going to put a big entrance there. Oh, in one sense, it's very exclusive, isn't it? But in another sense, it is quite wide. Because God's allowing them to come. No matter what their sin, out there in the camp, they could come to the entrance. They could come to the gate with their offering. Say, I need to present this as my sacrifice. The Levites and the priest, however, the actual function ended up working... here we go. We'll take your your offering, we'll slit its throat, put it on the altar. And go in peace. Probably Aaron, high priest, after the offering is made, is allowed to say to that individual, and now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to smile upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you. And the Lord grant you His peace, my son. Go name. God allows them to enter the courtyard. Whoever, whoever calls on my name, I will in no way The gate is really pretty wide, isn't it? Look at who He allows in. Through Christ, we're allowed into the very presence of God. Ah, my soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. Yes, He is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life, but there is a way. We're not left in our sin and in our misery. We're not left hopeless. We're not left in despair. God provided an entrance to the courtyard, even as God has allowed the gate, a door, into His presence yet. through His Son, Jesus Christ. Blessing it is to come into the courts. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you. For as we see this pictured for us in its final fulfillment in glory, the Apostle John tells us that there is a throng that no man can number from every nation, from every tribe, from every language. That you call unto yourself, into your presence. Whole nations. Father, thank you that in your mercy and grace, we have been included as part of those called into your presence today. May it have been a joy, may it have been a delight to feed upon Christ this morning at the table, to feed upon your word in this evening hour, to be with you. Oh Lord, how it creates the same longing as the psalmist had But a longing, Father, not for an earthly tabernacle, not for an earthly church. It creates for us, Father, that glorious desire to be in your presence for all of eternity. To be in the courts of our Lord. And we, by grace, through Christ, will be there. God's people say. Amen.